It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. I don't know. It's not, the press release I read made it sound like Rock and Ice was going to go away at some point. So I just assume that's going to happen at some point in the next six months or whatever. Right. But, um, and it just hasn't happened yet. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's probably all these machinations that need to go, but probably that in you know that was an industry announcement and basically an industry source. And so I've probably no one really out there really knows in the greater sort of climbing community that it's that it is going away because there's been, you know, the website's up, it's still producing content, everything else, it's all normal. So I guess it's probably us not having the proper perspective um, that that announcement probably fell on nobody's actual eyes other than industry people. But maybe mm -hmm. it's the first time everybody's hearing it. But yeah, Rock and Ice was bought by the company that um, owns Climbing Magazine, among other publications, and will in fact disappear soon at some point over the next half a year or whatever. But so may yeah. the uh, the United States. So whatever, like, <laughs> it's all gonna. <laughs> it's, it's all being consolidated into <laughs> one business owned by Jeff Bezos. Yeah, but I mean, it's a huge. You know, what what do we even call climbing media? Like there, for most of our lives, you and I, Andrew, it was climbing magazine and rock and ice. Like mm -hmm. end of list. You know, then there's all these little things now, like us. I mean, there's a lot bigger ones than than us, but. Those were still, I mean, despite the fact that they were print magazines, were like these, you know, these two touchstones uh, as climbing media. And so it's like half of it's gone all of a sudden. And in fact, I always thought that Rock and Ice probably had a, you know, more authentic or more uh, trusted foothold in the media um, at this point than Climbing Magazine did anymore. So, yeah, it's kind of a well, big the, deal. The, I mean, the, the real difference is that Rock and Ice is owned by a family and they're not owned by a, a corporation that can hemorrhage money, you know, for three quarters in a row and then, and, and, you know, make that back the next year. Um, so, you know, these are real individuals who are hurting just in this new post COVID world. From what I understand, all the advertising just went away, which is odd to me because it's not like people stopped buying climbing gear or stopped climbing or, and a lot of industries like like the bike industry just like took off since COVID happened. And so there's a lot of outdoor companies I think have actually been doing surprisingly well. But when the pandemic first um, hit the US, it was a lot of fear of the unknown and what this is going to mean for the economy. And, um, and so there's a lot of belt tightening that took place across the industry. I mean, that pretty much directly led to, to Rock and Ice being sold. I mean, it's a personal thing here in Carbondale, obviously, because Rock and Ice is here currently. Um, we know, you know, at least as far as Rock and Ice, I mean, it, it's a it's a multi-publication business. Uh, Trail Runner was there as well as Jim Clymer. Um, but we know, you know, 90% of the people that work for, for what was called Big Stone Publishing and uh, specifically on the Rock and Ice staff. I mean, not do we just know them, but we're actually close friends with most of them. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it is like that tragic thing of an industry, if you will, the, the print magazine industry, you know, tightening its belts really badly over the last few years to begin with. And then, you know, they're, they were just not in a position to weather the COVID thing. 
And uh, like you said, they don't have reserves or this projected pile of money that can get them through to another another quarter when things get better. So it's a real bummer. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. The, the climbing media thing um, has also made us start thinking about the whole mainstream media, their little interjections into climbing, which uh, blew up recently with uh with emily harrington and and uh, her one day ascent of golden gate getting picked up as the first female to climb el cap in a day um and well, which was also too. so interesting that they picked that story up uh, that was the week of the presidential election i mean it's not like there is a dearth of news that was taking place which really explained a lot of the donwall phenomenon was literally a slow news month if you can right. remember that and what that was like. Well, what a slow mood Pre- news month was like. Pre-Trump. Um, this is 2015. And yeah, it was literally a slow news month and a story about the Donwall, you know, made it into the New York Times. And then everyone just started talking about this, this thing. And that's kind of how that happened. And it's interesting that kind of set this like pattern or paradigm to how mainstream news organizations kind of cover the sport. You know, El Cap is like kind of the center stage for a lot of this stuff. Well, it's interesting you say that because the Donwall had the benefit of at least John Branch. He uh, was kind of the person who broke that story to the sort of bigger world. And though he also made mistakes, he endeavored to understand what the hell he was talking about. And in some ways, I thought that, okay, what ended up coming out of the out of like the core reporting on Donwall was going to be sort of like good for climbing because it's like, okay, here's this guy who endeavored to figure out what he was talking about. I thought, okay, well, good. They've got it sorted out and maybe going forward, it'll, it'll, it'll change things. But, uh, but apparently it hasn't because the machinations of climbing still, even the very basic machinations of climbing, let alone the nuance still seems to elude um, anybody picking up any of these stories unless it's a feature article where they spent you know, weeks with the person. We just got a text from our friend, um, a former editor at Climbing Magazine, and he was, he kind of launched this conversation that we're having right now because he was wondering why not more has been made of rock and ice being bought and sold, or he certainly hadn't heard much about it. Um, And I don't know if it's because people just don't, to your point, Chris, just follow the, the industry news or if people just don't really care anymore. And, um, I don't know. I mean, like I, as a, as when I first started climbing, climbing magazines were like a huge, huge part of my, you know, my stoke and, and excitement and connection to the sport. And that's all been replaced with, uh, social media and for better and worse. I mean, I think mostly for worse in a lot of ways, but also for better because there's just more good stuff. But yeah, it's just an interesting to see how climbing media has changed and sort of become more, more personalized. Like the, the young people who engage who, I mean, so let's just like characterize who the person is that gets psyched about climbing media. It's, it's most likely a person who's in their first five years of the sport. They're just like hungry for anything. They want to know who the names are and what the people are doing and what, what, what this whole thing is all about. And those people, they used to just all read one issue of rock and ice or one issue of climbing magazine. And it would, that's would be your connection to understanding what 
what this sport is all about. And that information was, you know, edited, written in a way that provided context to the history of the sport. So there was like historical elements to it that were explained. And it was just like a richer experience. And now it seems like you may not even know who someone like, you know, Tommy Caldwell is, but you know who the strong kid in your local gym culture is and you follow him or her on Instagram. And that's like, this person's like going out to J tree to do whatever. And that that's your connection to, to getting psyched about climbing. There's a way to just like insulate yourself from the history and context of the sport in, in ways that I think uh, is, is a loss for just, you know, certain elements of what make climbing great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's partially like, I think maybe coming out in the wash, maybe that this is like an old guy lament a little bit, because again, like you said, and anyone from our generation, they're going to cite the fact that you poured through climbing and rock and ice when it showed up at your house or when you got it. And if you were mostly, you borrowed it from somebody, which, you know, never helped their business model or whatever. But and I mean, I have friends still who have, 50 issues of climbing on their shelf in their house somewhere you know just you kept it you because you wanted you literally could use it as a piece of research if you wanted to go somewhere or do something that they'd reported on and it's it's funny because you know two things have happened the the not only has the internet exploded but that has been you know it's coincided with an explosion in climbing um because the the funny thing and we've been we've been joking about this the last couple of days, sending each other screenshots from, from old climbing magazines, because they used to literally in, in a monthly magazine, uh, report all the significant first ascents that happened, like literally in the nation could be, could be <laughs> sized up in like two or three pages of this famous thing called hot flashes, which, uh, I mean, to think about it now is just astounding that if you, put up something even relatively hard, it got into hot flashes. I actually was in hot flashes oh, a couple were. few times. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So <laughs> it's like to, just to point out how insignificant it kind of all was, but you know, it's just like a thing to, uh, a cons- I mean, since we started this podcast, like someone bolted and sent, you know, two or three, five, 13 D's across the nation. Yeah. Um, and, and, a th- you know, they're literally, you can go back far enough where they're reporting on, flashes of 13 a's you know which is something that happens like every minute of every day across the world now so since we've started um, this conversation there's been three teenagers who've done omaha beach yeah (laughs) exactly and the other one's tying in the next one's tying in right now um so yeah so it's like it's just kind of a wild thing to remember how consolidated it all was and how the information again was through these two conduits maybe for better or worse i mean i think that that you know climbing magazine in particular was was a, a magazine that was once dedicated to preserving sort of a history but it's still you know you can criticize and you know looking back from our era it's easy to criticize you know a magazine that was probably extraordinarily not diverse you know in its reporting and what it was talking about and and definitely had a narrative i mean you know we haven't talked about alpinist um at this point as being a part of this this print mix, I think they've always been a little bit of a, of a third player in terms of popularity, but, um, you know, but they have 
I mean, you and I have talked about it. They have a, a definitely a very specific and strong editorial bent, you know, um, mm-hmm. that it gets filtered through. I mean, it's really one person. And so it's interesting how that for all the, the negative, you can talk about this like whirlwind of information that comes out of the internet. Um, there is that positive of, you know, it's not really one person that's directing how climbing is talked about. And in the history of rock and ice and the history of climbing and the history of alpinists, they've all had essentially one person that influenced it more than anybody else over the entire history of all three of those magazines. So I studied abroad in New Zealand. I know you did as well, Chris, because we were leading separate lives a decade apart. But um, yes, I was in Dunedin on the South Island and there was one outdoor store in Wanaka, which has got to be about three or four hours away uh, from where I was living, that would sell um, the American climbing magazines. And I used to like specifically make trips to go up there to, you know, (laughs) go climbing in Wanaka, which is a beautiful place as well as having great climbing. But also I was so excited to see the, the new issues when they came out and they were all, you know, like the, (laughs) they were like the three issue old issues that would just finally arrive in New Zealand. So it wasn't even like the fresh content, but, um, (laughs) it's a funny memory to just think of doing something like that. And now I mean, I subscribe to, uh, you know, a lot of different kinds of magazines and I almost never choose to have them send issues to my house because I'm just reading stuff online. And it actually seems insane to me that if I were to, as a writer, if I'm going to publish something that I want people to read, that I would give it to an editor to put into a magazine, to have it shipped to China, to have it printed, to have it shipped back to the U.S., have it delivered to your house like six weeks later so that I could then get paid for that eight months after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. No, I it's mean, just like the, the most insane yeah. system. Yeah, like the carbon footprint of your nostalgia, if you're still a magazine person, you know, it's something that you probably should examine. Um, totally. Because, I mean, again, and I, it's probably an age thing, although, I, you know, I don't think exclusively, but yeah, I mean, we all you know, I still have that nostalgia and that like need to not read stuff on a, on a computer screen, you know, and, and, and leafing through, I mean, I still get national geographic, although man, I tell you what, they've been hammering the pandemic so much. That's just like, give me some, you know, give me something else. You guys, like, I can't have this also showing up in my freaking mailbox. I need, you know, I need some mummies. Give me, just go back and give me some mummies. That's what I want to read about, not the pandemic, but nevertheless, you know, it's just kind of this nostalgia that, is allowing us to to cling to these things. But, you know, the the editorial process, again, I was sort of talking about the negatives of it when it's filtered through a single person, essentially, or, or maybe a staff, but finally, you know, a single person sort of signing off on it, if you will. But uh, but then the editorial process also has its has its benefits that like, you know, complete non-factual garbage couldn't just be put online. You know, it, it had to go through somebody who maybe did some tertiary fact checking at, at the very least, you know, quality checking, you know, we, we want this to represent our magazine and, and please people and things like that. And so, you know, the lack of sort of a quality control, but also the lack of accountability that goes with putting something online is, you know, definitely maybe in climbing itself, isn't the hugest problem. Um, Cause I don't think we have sort of like a major climbing misinformation 
campaign going on out there. But still, the editorial process does allow for for quality and for maybe some sort of uh, more accurate information to come into your head. But still through a lens, you know, always through a lens. You know, there used to be this barrier to getting on a cover of a climbing magazine and launching your career as like a, you know, a known or professional climber. That was, you had to actually do something rad that was noteworthy and newsworthy. And now we live in an, a media era where you don't need to send a route. You just need to have a person take a cool photo of you or a video of you climbing a few moves in a row. And you can put that on social media and have hundreds of thousands of people following you and liking it and so forth. That has been detrimental to maybe, or just stifling, I think, in a way to like just progress or just 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 being able to understand what is and isn't exceptional or rad or noteworthy in climbing. And that was formerly the, you know, the the editors of the climbing magazines were the gatekeepers of that. And that has, that power has been dispersed and shifted into the hands of the public. Although, you know, I'm just thinking about this now because we're, you know, we're, we've talked to Emily Harrington about her ascent and, you know, maybe now instead of being on the cover of Rock and Ice magazine, you're actually, you know, on the Today Show or on the, you know, the mainstream cable news channels and they're covering your stories. And so that's the, that's the new mark of how to, you know, launch your professional career or just ex- take your professional career to that next level. No, let's don't say it's so, you know, <laughs> well, because it, I think like, I'm it's just, just I'm like, just it, I just like, <laughs> I, I know, but it's like, you know, I think that if Alex Honnold went and free sold a, a building in Dubai, we'd hear, you know, just as much of it, about it as we heard about, uh, you know, Emily's ascent of Golden right. Gate or anything else or way, way more. So, I mean, to, to sort of like gauge our, our like, you know, the admiration of our climbing heroes based on how much mainstream media coverage they get is just like, that sounds so dystopian to me because it's just well because the people it, who make those could decisions like don't know show. what they're talking about don't know what they're talking about right yeah. so it goes back to that yeah can you imagine rock and ice or climbing in like nineteen you know ninety putting a picture of someone on the cover of a route they didn't send no I mean no. it wouldn't happen and it, <laughs> it just it, wouldn't happen it might happen but the climber would be so ashamed. Uh, and they would get so much shit from their colleagues and fellow climbers that they would be mortifying. I'll take but that. But I mean, are, is it like, does it matter? <laughs> does it matter? Does it really matter? No, it's no. We're in this like phase of nihilism about, about <laughs> climbing where nothing <laughs> matters <standards>. anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's totally true. But what are you going to do? Emily Harrington is one of the most decorated climbers of our time. Today, she returns to the runout to tell us about her most recent accomplishment, becoming the first woman to free climb Golden Gate on El Capitan in a day. Have you heard of any uh, interesting climbing news that's happened lately, Chris? I heard this kid named Jordan Cannon did Golden Gate in a day. I heard that the other day. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, hey, Emily Harrington's here to talk to us about <laughs> <laughs> climbing Golden Gate in a day. So tell us about what you know about Jordan's ascent. <laughs> <laughs> was it faster than yours? Slower? What? I was. 
will say that my time was 21 hours and 13 minutes, but that's only because Adrian had my phone and he had to spend like 30 minutes maybe jugging the final pitch. So I was pretty similar to Jordan, I would say. <laughs> okay, you lost 30 minutes is what you're saying. I did. I didn't have my phone. And so I didn't get to stop the timer until he got up there. <laughs> what kind of professional climber are you? <laughs> so I was sub 21 hours, but no one knows that. <laughs> they do now. The whole climbing world knows now because they all yeah. listen to this podcast. So for real, we have to both congratulate you. Um, it's an astounding feat. A lot of people listening to the Normacast know, and you know, Emily, I've been up on Golden Gate in a, a, a much less auspicious ascent. But uh, when I came down from that, I think I ran into you at the trade show pretty soon after that. And um, we were walking down the street and I I literally felt like getting on my knees and sort of prostrating myself to you because of, of um, you had already freed it at that point um, in, yeah. a, in a, you know, a normal kind of push climb. And uh, the, it's just a really difficult climb, I thought, um, a, definitely a, a major jump up um, in commitment and difficulty from the free rider, which is sort of considered the, the next uh, easiest or the easiest route down from that. So I just want to congratulate you because doing it in the first place blew my mind that you freed it. And then the second place doing it a day is just like an incredible feat. And your boldness to do it that way as well as uh, your physical ability is just astounding. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was definitely a life life dream type of, type of thing. And I'm pretty glad that it's over. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah i mean you banged your head against it for a bit literally i did literally um, literally so uh again congratulations and, and way to go thank you well, it, was, it was cool just for both of us having you know because we're friends with you and we know you we we got to see up close your dedication i think to climbing in the last couple of years and all your energy was like really put toward doing this one big thing i think just physically i noticed a change in you you just got noticeably physically stronger and and then we're obviously climbing really well too so it's cool to just see you level up on in, in so many ways yeah thanks i um I de it definitely was something that i was putting most if not all of my energy towards the last last few years and just really kind of analyzing what i needed to get better at and a lot of it was physical strength and just having the fitness to go for that long and climb that hard, that high off the ground after already having a long day. So I appreciate that. It was a lot of experimentation and a lot of dedication and frustration. <laughs> well, and one of the things to, to point out um, just logistically for climbers is to understand that um, the hardest climbing or two of the hardest pitches anyway of the, of the three or four really hard pitches come at the end of that climb nearly. Um, you're you're a few pitches from the top on um, much more pedestrian climbing. Although I think the last pitch of that thing is really hard. But yeah, so it's it's an incredible feat to be able to send delicate hard five thirteen and then also powerful five thirteen in those two last hard pitches. So I think that's been been something that I think some climbers understand, but a lot of climbers don't. Is that it's you know twenty seven pitches in or whatever. Uh, we don't have to be spe that specific, but at the very end of the route, you've still got to have the 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 go ahead to get across that a5 traverse so it, it gets really steep up there and it i think that's where the difficulty really kind of sets in because you're already kind of blasted and if you know if you're on the free rider you're just 
at that point, you're just kind of crack climbing. You can kind of get by if, if you have technique and if you know how to crack climb. But up there, it's the A5 Traverse, that's just straight up like World Cup endurance. You just have to be able to like shake out and work with the pump and get through it. And then the, you're right. The final pitches are not, not trivial. They're run out, overhanging, laybacking, 511. And then at the very end, you have that really stupid 511 dihedral that guards the summit like 20 yeah. feet below. It's like 10 yeah. feet of like – Yeah. Yeah. It's, I remember I had no idea about that. And, of course, I thought like, oh, I'm almost at the top after like being beaten into pieces. And then I'm like, what is this? And let me tell you something about that. those moves. They're also really hard to aid climb. I'm just going to let you know. Oh, it's yeah. It's actually a really yeah. hard aid climbing move. <laughs> well, and it's, it's scary and it's dangerous. And then like yeah. – when I got up there, I was standing there for maybe like 10 minutes because I had never climbed that pitch in the dark. And it was like 10 o'clock. And I was standing in the little stance, just sitting in the corner, like looking at the hole, picking them so that I would be able to see them when I got mm -hmm. up higher. Because mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. super, the feet are bad. The whole thing is just, yeah, it's stressful. It was not over until it was over. <laughs> well, well, and the climbing, the free climbing on El Cap is kind of wild like that, I think, because there's obviously the hard pitches, but then, you know, there's like these moves in the middle of 5.11 where, yeah, it's 5.11, but there's one desperate grab in there that's like super low percentage. And, you know, so it's like it counts as 5.11 because it's one stab, but it's still a desperate stab, you know, um, and there's in the, the Golden Gate is full of those those sorts of moves yeah. all over the place, you know, for sure. I've just learned after climbing on El Cap for a few years to. I don't think there are any easy pitches. There's no pitches where you can like turn off your brain and just go wander up there, like romping. There's no right. romping for me on El Cap. It's like right. everything is engaging. Everything takes a certain level of thought. Everything takes technique. And especially in a day, like you have to be, the thing I never appreciated until now was it's really easy as like a 514 climber to think that you're really good at climbing 5.10. And the reality is that you're you're really not that good at climbing 5.10 until you climb a lot of 5.10. <laughs> and you have to do it, like in order to perform well on say the A5 Traverse, 2,800 feet off the ground, you have to have climbed super efficiently up to there. And that includes climbing really well on the moderate stuff. And it's just not that moderate, I don't think. And you have to focus on it a lot. And so for me, that was one of the biggest things I learned was really having to be efficient on the easier pitches and i just in my 20 something years of climbing i never really thought that i needed that until recently <laughs> so well, all those crusty uh uh yosemite climbers are like let's see you climb like a 510 off with they actually have they were, a point yeah they're right <laughs> unfortunately i know it's it's kind of frustrating like we kept saying that about alex honnold like he's just right about a lot of things and it's as annoying as that is, it's true. <laughs> um, one, I mean, what we're alluding to here is that it's not just a physical performance. There's a mental aspect to it as well. I, I think that we just need to touch on two of the stories on your saga with this route that speak to the, the mental hurdles that you overcame to do this. And speaking of 510, I think it, I believe you fell on the first pitch last year, which is what 510 or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, probably took one of the worst falls of your life. Maybe second only to the fall you took on the in a day ascent this year where you 
banged your head up pretty good and got a Harry Potter scar. And mm-hmm. yeah, so maybe you could just tell our listeners these two stories. Yeah. So last fall, I was progressing pretty well with this goal. And I had tried once earlier in the season and failed on the A5 Traverse, but made it all the way up there and failed, which is not uncommon. A lot of people trying to free Golden Gate in a day fail on the A5 Traverse because it's super physical and pumpy and you're just so blasted by the time you get up there. And so it was one of the first times that I felt like I was actually capable of doing it. Sort of an interesting realization that late in my commitment to the project of realizing like, oh, actually maybe I can do this. So I rested a little bit and actually trained a little bit of endurance with the intention of going back and trying one more time that season. And I think I tried on November 21st of last year. It was right before a huge snowstorm came and like shut the season down essentially. And I was going to have a better, better day weather wise. Like the first time I tried it was super, super hot and pretty tough conditions. Um, And this time the weather was going to be better. Um, But that said, when I started that morning at like 4.30 in the morning, it was 23 degrees. And I didn't really like register in my brain that it was significantly colder than it had ever been. There was a little bit of humidity in the air. And I started up the first pitch with with the same tactics that I had with Alex the previous time. We were going to simul climb the first 2,000 feet of the route um, until we got to the harder climbing. And meaning that I was going to place very little gear. I was going to be super run out and we were going to be moving really fast. And I just sort of set off really comfortable feeling, really confident, just kind of turned my brain off a little bit. And within the first hundred feet of the route, I noticed that my feet were numb, but I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, oh, I'll warm them up when I get to a little stance or whatever. And um, the next thing I knew, I was falling through the air, cartwheeling. And I had placed a piece maybe 15 or 20 feet below me. Um, The first pitch is 10C. It's a little bit slippery. It's like this weird like double crack system. And before I hit the end of the rope, I actually landed on a ledge upside down, hit my head, fully knocked out, concussion. I got incredibly lucky. There was a huge fear of spinal injury, back injury, head injury, all of the things. It was pretty, it was pretty intense, actually. It was the most... It was the worst accident I've ever had. I went to the hospital and had all the tests done and essentially walked out of the hospital that day, but was pretty, pretty shaken by the whole experience. I had a concussion. I did not have any spinal injury or anything like that, but it very well could have. I think I was really, really, really lucky. And so that was the end of my season last year, which was pretty hard coming back into the season this year, especially because I was planning on going back in the spring and then Yosemite was closed because of COVID. So I just sort of had this long period of time where I was training and trying to prepare and trying to figure out how it would feel to go back and dealing with a lot of fear, a lot of questioning my own ability, a lot of questioning my own boldness, my own comfort level, because free climbing El Cap in a day is actually, there's a lot of tactics you have to use that just aren't safe. It's just not a safe way to climb. You have to cut a lot of corners in order to go fast. And so I just wasn't sure if I was going to be able to handle it mentally this year. And coming back into it this year, I was actually surprised at how prepared and comfortable I felt. I feel like almost like I had trained my mind so well that when I came into it this year, I 
was able to approach that pitch with like a more conservative mind, but also with the awareness that if I wanted to succeed, I was still going to have to use the same tactics that I'd used last year and the same ones that resulted in me going to the hospital. And I was just going to have to sort of work through those mental demons. Did you put a piece at the crux this time on that pitch? Yeah. It was exactly the same. It was exactly the same, but then I put another one above it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I was definitely, you know, it was was an avoidable accident. You know, I, I was definitely running it out too much. I was definitely far too comfortable. And I told Alex this time, I was like, dude, I'm not going to, I'm not going to run it out as much. I'm probably not going to climb as fast. Like, I think the fastest we climbed the free blast last year was an hour and a half. And this year I did it in two hours because I was just like, I'm not going to go that fast this time. It doesn't work well for me. (laughs) So there's a balance for sure of like the comfort and safety and risk that I'm, you know, still figuring out. But I think I had it, I had a pretty good uh, awareness of it this year. So where did you uh, get your Harry Potter scar on this ascent? So this ascent was going so well. Everything was just working out, and I was climbing so well. I sent the down climb on my second try, which is one of the harder, one of my crux pitches for me. It's like a slab 513 down climb that I've slipped off so many times, and I just sent it. I sent the move pitch on my first try. I felt so good. And then I got to the Tower to the People which is the base of the Golden Desert, which is the 13A pitch right below the A5 Traverse. And I've actually never fallen there. Um, I've always climbed it cleanly, never been an issue for me. Um, But I was a little, I think, once again, the lesson that I learned was I needed to be a little more patient. I decided to try it in the sun. It was was a hot day again. First time I climbed up there, I uh, was in like this laybacking section, like kind of tip layback, smeary, pumpy section of the wall and I was actually chalking up when my foot slipped and I fell and I ripped up I ripped a piece but the fall was fine it was felt totally safe and I was a little bummed but I was like oh well I wasn't really that tired I can I can go back up there Um, so I rested a little bit and then I went back up there 30 minutes later still hot got through that part and was in this like roof traverse section and once again on a move that I'd never fallen on before foot slips in the sun and I took a fall that felt very normal. I just didn't think anything of it in the air. I was like, oh, this is safe. I have a piece. I'm going to be fine. And then the next thing I knew, I just like saw black and like felt this pain on my forehead. And it was just sort of a deja vu type of situation. Like I was like, oh, not again. Like I cannot believe this happened again. And I, I just remember feeling like the, like the warm, sticky <laughs> fluid like running down my face and there was just blood in my eyes like head wounds bleed a lot and there was blood just like all over my shirt all over my hand and I, I lowered down to the ledge and it was just this I just had this thinking feeling like oh my god it's so, like it's over again it was going so well and then all of a sudden the wheels came off and I had a pretty decent size it almost looked like a bullet hole it was like in my forehead um must have just like hit it with a crystal or something like that. But I didn't lose consciousness. I didn't have any symptoms of a concussion or anything like that. So we stopped the bleeding and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to wait for the shade and uh, try one more time. But at that point, it was pretty, I was pretty done, honestly. I felt like quitting. I wanted to be done. And I told myself that I was going to try one more time. 
And if I didn't do it, then I could stop and I could like go down and I kind of, you know, I just was pretty emotionally drained. And then I had one of those crazy experiences that you have when you hit rock bottom and you don't really care about anything else. And you just like let yourself, it's almost like you just let your body take over and you don't, you don't even have to think. It was like I was not even in my body. It was the weirdest thing. It was like I was watching myself climb. And I was just sort of like ascending the wall, thinking the whole time, why am I still holding on? Why is it still happening? Like, what's, what is even going on? It was like I didn't even have control. And then I got to the anchor and I had sent the pitch. And then I had the A5 still to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Like, it's amazing that you, that, 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 like, you know, I kind of, your head hitting the rock and you bleeding, like, I sort of imagine this, like, crystal, if you will, like a castle around you, like, shattering to pieces. And anybody in the world, I think, would be completely justified just to throw the towel in right there and just be like, okay, the, you know, the fortress I've built around this has is, is been destroyed and we're done and I'm going to jug out of here. And, like, it's just, it is this astounding piece of information that's been mentioned and obviously there's been pictures of you with this thing on your head but you know again to for me to to sort of put myself in that place and I literally started my hands started sweating when you were talking <laughs> about that roof traverse because I remember it and then to sit there on that I mean I, I like almost like choke up thinking about the feelings you must have had sitting there on that tower not just you know that your project might have been over but I mean it's just you know an, an incredibly big place to be and it's like so suddenly you could have looked around and just had this realization of like what the fuck you were actually trying to do and how big it was and you know it would have crushed a lot of people even somebody as strong as you are I think it did honestly like I think if I hadn't have had the people around me that were there on that day I don't think I would have made that decision to try again it was basically Adrian who was he was sitting there with me and he was like, you can do this. Like you, you owe it to yourself to try one more time. And I was sort of like, I don't really want to try again. Like I'm kind of over it. I'm kind of done. And, but he was the one that was just like, you have to try again. You know, you, you deserve to try again. Like you can do this. I know you can do this. And I, I just didn't believe him. But at the same time, there was a part of me that was like, I, I do have to try again. And it's not, for me in my head, it was it was a very simple thing. It was like, it's not that much to ask to just get on the wall. And sometimes I trick myself into doing this. I've done this before with sport climbing. It's like, you can just, you can literally get on the wall and fall at the first bolt and then you can go home. That's all you have to do, but you have to get on the wall. And so that was the mentality of like, just get, just get out there and like do some moves and prove to yourself, essentially like prove to yourself that you can't do it. You can slip off on the first bolt and that's fine as long as you try so that was my mentality of like, okay, fine. I'll get on there and I'll show you that I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably fortuitous that you had Adrian with you in that moment instead of Honold because he probably would have been less uh, encouraging. Um, yes, I think that, I mean, and I love Honold. He's amazing and he was a great partner for the first two thirds of the route. Um, but that was a very strategic decision um, to have... <laughs> to utilize Honold's speed and competency in the lower part of the route and then to switch over to Adrian towards the top because I, I did need that emotional support and that empathy and that person who was like, 
I'll stay with you until we get to 24 hours. Like, I don't, I don't care. And Alex's mentality is a little bit more like last year, he was saying, if you don't free climb El Cap in under 16 hours, your, your chances of success go down a lot. (laughs) And I don't, I don't necessarily believe that anymore because I think as long as you come prepared and as long as you're in the mindset of like, like I went into that day being like, okay, I'm going to go 24 hours. Like I'm going to bring warm clothes. I'm going to bring extra food. I'm going to bring extra water. Like I'm going to be ready to kind of like stick it out because it's not, you know, like Tommy and Alex climbed that route. Like it wasn't that big of a deal for them. You know, Tommy basically onsighted it in a day. Like it's just a different game for, for them. And so, you know, and I've done things like climb big mountains and be awake for more than 24 hours. And just like, I'm a little bit more used to that style of, just kind of sticking it out and and going for it as long as it takes. Um, So I think that was such a strategic thing that we all kind of made that decision. And I am really glad that we did. (laughs) Well, and just to clarify, since we're we're sort of throwing Alex under the bus is Adrian is your husband. I don't know in case people sort of miss that. Um, So we're talking about an emotional support of, of your, you know, your life partner, your, the yeah. love of your life. So it's not just, you know, it's not just like Adrian was just some other person. No, um, not at know? all. <laughs> totally. And, yeah. and it was like, I just need, for me personally, I think when it gets hard like that, it's, it's ideal to have your person there. Right, right, like right. that person who gives you that emotional support and who believes in you. And, you know, Alex is a wonderful climbing, like he's one of the best climbing partners I've ever had but he's not that person. Right. And so just having Adrian there to go into the night with me was um, super important. So I want to segue into a different topic because um, I helped break this story. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for Outside Magazine. And so I, I interviewed you like I think a day or two after you had done the route. And one of the things you expressed concern about was the fact that you had injured yourself. You'd had you you got a head wound and you weren't wearing a helmet and you were a little bit concerned about how that would be perceived because there, as we all know, anyone who's been in the climbing media business for more than a week knows that there's a lot of people on the internet who have very strong opinions about wearing helmets. And what was interesting about that, uh, we, we can talk about that as much or as little as you want, but what was interesting is that how that was not ended up not being the the controversy, so to speak, um, because of some misinformation that got into the mainstream media ecosystem. I don't know. I just wanted to flag that as like a, a an irony about how this story ended up getting played out in the mainstream media, which it it turned into like a Donwall style media event where it had lots of coverage in in uh, publications and newspapers and so forth. Yeah, it was interesting because I I just didn't I didn't really foresee the like media explosion in the way that it happened, but maybe I should have because last year when I fell, it was a media explosion because I fell and I was with Alex, you know, and then I feel like a lot of the same media wanted to cover the success, which is which is great. And I was super fixated on the helmet thing because I just get so many people telling me that I need to wear a helmet, calling me out for not wearing a helmet, just like all just, it's, it's just a total thing for me. I get a lot of direct messages from people. And, and so it was definitely something that was on my mind. And then all of a sudden 
the media mainstream caught on to it and then everyone all got all mad about that. So I think one of the things that I learned from all this is that no matter what happens, if you do something and it gets a lot of attention, people are just going to find something to be mad at you for. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The controversy was that I think the AP reported that you were the first woman to free climb El Cap in a day as opposed to uh, Golden Gate. Yeah. And it, you can kind of understand the yeah. honest mistake that was made there where they, uh, nobody knows what Golden Gate is, but everyone's kind of heard of El Cap and some editor made the decision that it's better SEO to put El Cap in the headline instead of Golden Gate or just didn't understand the nuance of what they were putting out there. But then what followed was, uh, you know, this one AP report launched a thousand other articles and I I texted you this Emily which I I heard of, I've heard about artificial intelligence being able to write news <laughs> reports and that always scared me but I honestly think at this point it would be better than what we currently have which is just interns at these newsrooms regurgitating you know press releases or news reports that they get from the AP and doing no original reporting or research on their own it it was interesting to just see the see how the the mainstream news works and can also be a source of just a, a regrettable error like that. It was very frustrating for me to see all that. I felt super, I felt really bad. I felt very like, almost like it, it was my fault somehow. And I, I was very sensitive to it. And it was almost like it, it took a little bit of the magic away from my own, my own personal feeling towards my achievement because I was just so worried about what my community might think. And I just didn't, I didn't want to be that person that like blew up on the news for something that was completely false and for something that sort of erased the achievements that came before mine. You know, obviously like I grew up knowing who Lynn Hill was. I grew up knowing exactly what she did and free climbing El Cap in a day for me is like, it's an achievement that is owned by a woman and pioneered by a woman. And that is so unique and so special and so important to our history that it was really, it was kind of devastating for me that all that happened. Um, But thankfully, like I got to talk to Lynn about it and she was very cool. And she was just sort of like, yeah, that's just how it is. Like the media, they don't understand climbing. That's always how it's been. And I think in a way it's it's hard because you want the media to report about climbing. Like it's good for us. It's good for, it's good for me. It's good for my career, but everything was just so, everything happened so fast. Everything was so rushed and it just went viral so quickly that I felt like I had no control over any of it. And that was, that was very weird because for so long, this project was so, so personal and it was just something that was only mine. And it was something that I kept so sacred within myself. And now all of a sudden it was just like all over everywhere and everyone could say whatever they wanted to about it. So it was just a really weird, weird experience to go through, I guess. <laughs> so uh, Chris and I have this idea for um, how to use the remainder of our time with you. And because, because your story has this uh, Don Wall-esque uh, nature to it with um, being so widely covered, and I'm sure you're doing many more uh, interviews and so forth in the next <laughs> month. We thought that we could ask you some questions as if we are the mainstream media and we can we can grade your responses to them. Um, just because just so okay. we can get this right. Let's see it. Uh, you're the first woman ever to freehand up Mount El Capitan. What's that like? 
Oh, wow. Um, okay. So first of all, let me clarify a few things. I am the first woman to free climb a route called the Golden Gate up El Capitan. Um, free climbing is a style of climbing where you use only okay, your hands. Okay, next question. Um... <laughs> See, it just, it cut, just makes cut. it um, also... <laughs> you have to, if, you, if you describe what free climbing is, you have, so hard. you have to use only your hands and feet. Yes, yeah, isn't that what it says? <laughs> yes. Were you tethered? <laughs> <laughs> tethered to the wall did you use okay, oxygen well on your next <laughs> you just spend so much time explaining yourself and it's just a really it's a monotonous process it is and it's it particularly monotonous because um big wall free climbing it has this uh it's so complicated there's so many rules and even climbers don't really understand exactly what constitutes a legit in a day free ascent of, of El totally and even climbing free climbing in a day is it's interesting because it's like there's not that many people who do it and even talking to alex about it he was like yeah tommy and i are basically the only one we we practice all these different tactics for simul climbing that nobody does like you can't it's not in a book it's not you can't read about it it's just trial and error so like the way that we simul climbed was just kind of him suggesting things to do to make it go faster like putting on a micro traction and just like belaying and climbing at the same time. Like there's just all these different ways to do it. And in order to truly understand what it's like, you have to actually try it. And not many, not that many people try it. Like Tommy texted me afterwards and he was like, he was like, I'm so psyched for you. That's so proud. He was like, now you're one of the only people who understands what it's like to actually free climb El Cap in a day. He's like, nobody else really can really grasp what it, what it's like and what it's all about. And it's true. It's, it's complicated. <laughs> do you um, have aspirations to do other routes on El Cap in a day? Yeah, I, I actually really do. Um, I really want, well, I'd really like to climb on the nose. I'd really like to try the nose just to see what it's like. Um, I'm pretty fascinated by just seeing all those photos of Lynn and video and everything. I'd love to, experience that i don't know about in a day but i definitely want to continue to climb on el cap and i think free climbing in a day is is a pretty fun way to climb that wall <laughs> i think that the uh the way forward for you is so wide open um it should be pretty exciting to see what you do i finally am at a point where i feel for so many years el cap was so intimidating it was so scary i spent most of my energy just trying to get over the fear and the intimidation and the kind of the feeling that I didn't even really belong there in the first place. Um, and now I finally feel some level of comfort on the wall. And it, it's exciting because it's like, oh, now I can actually focus on the climbing for what. If you like what we're doing here, you can show your gratitude in a number of ways. First, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Right now, there's a heated debate in the review section about my so-called whistle groan, as well as whether this podcast deserves 4.9 or merely 4.8 out of 5 stars. But the best way to support our show is to become a 514 Rope Gun on Patreon. Short of having started climbing on an elite youth team 20 years ago, there's no easier way to reach 514 Rope Gun status. And best of all, you'll get to hear bonus content, including extended interviews with our guests, such as this insight from Emily Harrington. I'm not going to do that, but you know what's super cute? 
Jordan Cannon wants to get a matching tattoo now. <laughs> <laughs> and I might is- do it. Don't be a bottom feeder. Become a rope gun today. For today's final bit, we present the first episode of The Runout's new exciting game show called Whose <laughs> Is This Anyway? This is the game where you try to match a famous power scream to both the climber and the route. Today's is from the year 2005 and involves a giant whipper that would have made anyone as mad as a snake. Let's listen. So who's is this anyway? At the time, this climber was working as an electrician. After a long hiatus from climbing, he has finally returned to the sport just this year. One of his most famous first ascents is a route called Greenspit. If you guessed Didier Bartoud climbing Cobra Crack, then congratulations. Not only do you know your climbing porn, but you've won a brand new Volkswagen. In 2005, Didier Bertude, a Swiss crack climber, spent two months projecting Cobra Crack and Squamish, an effort that was documented in the Center Films feature-length classic First Ascent. And while Didier came close to nabbing the First Ascent, a recurring knee injury from his days on the football pitch prevented him from ever clipping the chains. Ultimately, Sonny Trotter defended his home country's honor and nabbed Cobra Crack's First Ascent in 2006. Didier has spent the last 16 years holed up in a Christian monastery, but now he's just recently returned to the sport. Thanks for playing, everyone. And remember, sending should never be silent. And we'll see you here next time on Whose Is This Anyway? You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalouz, host of the Enorma Cast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Mm-hmm.